Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Immigration pulled me aside and asked me, they asked me, what was my name? And of course I answered Muhammad Ibn Ali. So they took me into a room and asked me the questions again. And I answered them just like I did before. So I'm sitting there waiting for about an hour and 45 minutes. And then they tell me, okay, you're free to go. And I was like, okay, so why was I detained? And no, that was not Muhammad Ali, though not far from the truth, but rather his only biological son, Muhammad Jr., whose voice indeed has been mistaken for that of his late iconic father. And in a defiant scene here, where Mohammed Jr. testifies in a protest against his experience of racial profiling and detention at a Florida airport. But curiously, his political outlook on the world has since changed significantly, and we'll find out how and why in our conversation with Mohammed Jr. coming up. And concerning his portrayal in a new documentary, My Father Muhammad Ali, But first, propaganda, the possibility of nuclear war, and the price of eggs. From rebel cop to righteous whistleblower and D.C. deep dive political analyst and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon is on the case. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And I just thought to myself... $848 billion for war, my friends. Of that, I think $40 billion goes to the nuclear. Oh, boy, we got to make sure that mankind gets wiped out. Got to have nuclear weapons because you never know. I mean, mankind is just not going to wipe itself out, right? So they got tons of money. We're getting closer and closer to a trillion dollars for war. Now, if you got 850 bases around the world, which some people believe, hey, the U.S. military is out there to do good. We're out there to save the world. (laughs) Then why are we using military bases? Wouldn't we be using that money? Diplomacy, wouldn't it be? We'd be using it to help people. If somebody buys a bunch of guns, it's to shoot you with. If they buy a bunch of feathers, some flowers, if somebody comes to your house with flowers, they're going to hear some flowers. Let's chat. If they come to your house with a machine gun, they're planning on killing and robbing you. Those 850 bases that we have around the world serve two purposes. One, for intimidation, military intimidation and violence. The other is to fill the pockets of the billionaires and make you poor. Now, they don't intentionally make you poor. They just don't care. 800, okay, so keep in mind, keep in mind, what happened? Biden asked for $802 billion, which is a disgrace. Congress... Then said, nah, ain't no way you're getting $802 billion. What are you, crazy? Are you out of your mind, Joe Biden? In times like this, do you think we can give you $802 billion? Not happening. We're giving you another $46. $848 billion you can get. $802, not so much. So let's look at this. As our government is providing $848 billion to Lockheed Martin, to, to Raytheon, to General Dynamics, as its $848 billion goes to war. At the same time, they're boosting Americans off of Medicaid because their family's making a couple more dollars. And, 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 And let me say this. They need a couple more dollars. I hear Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell on there saying, we've got to do this for to help Ukraine, whatever, right? And I think to myself, if I was president, you know what I would say? Eggs. That's what I would say. I would say, have you been to the store lately? I used to buy this dozen of brown. This is literal. Other week, day, I used to buy this dozen of eggs for $1.49. Now they're for $79. you are telling me that we've got a 13.5% uh, increase in prices for groceries. But yet, that's gone up over 200%. Please explain that to me. That's what I used to get cage-free eggs for. Now, I don't know, really, if the chickens were any happier because they were in a cage. Maybe they were. Maybe not. I don't know. But I, I, I liked them a little better. The shells were a little harder. And, you know, if the chickens are happier, great. 
I would rather have eggs from a happy chicken than a poor little chicken that's caught in a box his whole life, okay? So, okay, I was getting cage-free eggs for four seventy nine. Now, regular old generic eggs is four seventy nine. I can't even eat. I can't even have the peace anymore to know that my chickens are happy because I can't afford happy chickens. I got to eat the unhappy chicken eggs, which cost the same as the old happy. Now, that may not make sense to you. It does to me, but it may not make sense to you. But all I'm saying is this. $848 billion for the war machine, and we got to eat eggs from the unhappy chickens because they went from 179 to 479 See, those are the things that are affecting everybody, the day-to-day. Day-to-day. We don't sit around and say, yes, sir, we've got to provide harm our system and this and that. You know what most Americans say? We would prefer that we weren't at war. Is there a war going on? Yes. Can it potentially morph into a nuclear war and kill us all? Absolutely. Sure, that can happen. Most Americans would say, is there a possible way to bring this to a diplomatic end? Other than the those whose minds have been completely propagandized who are like, yes, we've got to stand up and fight for the good old U.S. of A. Okay, if you understand how the U.S. empire works and you know a little bit about history, you're probably not going to bite that hook. But let's just say you never opened a history book. Let's say you weren't around in 2003 when they lied us into a war. You wasn't around in 1999 when they wore, lied us into a war. You weren't around for any of the wars, every single one in our lifetime that they lied us into. You weren't around for any of those, because if you were around for any of those, and you still buy this crap, you probably deserve what you get, you know? So, let's just hope you weren't around, you didn't read a history book, if you think that what's going on now is somehow the government acting for the good of all humanity in your best interest. If they were acting for the good of all humanity, there would be no possibility that we could slip into nuclear war. No. If they were acting for your good, they'd say, hey, we could possibly go to nuclear war. This has to be stopped. Let's find a way to stop it. Instead, all we get is propaganda. Instead, all we get is the person like Garland who says, hey, can we find some way to peace? This is what we get. My God, he's a propagandist Putin puppet. He doesn't want us to all get fried in a nuclear war. And plus, he's upset because he used to pay $1.79 for the chicken eggs. And four seventy nine for the happy chicken cage free eggs, and now they're four seventy nine. And God only knows, I don't even want to know what the happy chicken cage free eggs cost, because I probably, I, I mean, I might as well buy golden eggs and just wear them around my neck. They'd probably be cheaper than a real one. Ugh. But at any rate, because you know, all I'm gonna do is complain anyway. Let me go on. Let me say another thing. We're living in a big scam. I, I, I mean, a big scam. When you look at the kind of numbers that we have, I've gone over them with people time and time again, right? Think about what kind of money that is. But they cannot afford health care for you. They cannot afford uh, to fix the roads. They cannot afford to upgrade the infrastructure. We've got barely passable uh, uh, public transportation. We got people on the streets. I'm just driving up K Street. Man, I couldn't believe what I saw. Driving up K Street this morning. And they got all these little parks coming in. My office is here on K Street. And they got, you know, these little square parks, right? Man, those things are loaded with tents. Now, this is in Washington, D.C. They're loaded with tents. And you know who's in the tents? Homeless people. And do you know how cold it is in Washington, D.C. right now? But here's the bottom line. It ain't, it is not nice outside. $848 billion. 40-some billion of it going to Ukraine. A war that should never have happened, a war that could have easily been avoided. If you if you look at it from what you're told on the mainstream media, you'll have no clue what it's about. You'll have no understanding whatsoever. You'll think it started last February. This war started in 2014. But all of that aside. All right. Let me t- let me add something to this. Something I said earlier that I was talking about. I was talking about all this money that comes in and goes out to the military industrial complex and you ain't getting none of it. Just out of curiosity, where's that money come from? It's your tax dollars. You pay it. You know what? Um, Lockheed Martin gets a seat at the table. Uh, Raytheon gets a seat at the table. Pfizer gets a seat. Everybody gets a seat. But you know who does not get a seat at the table? The people who are paying for the table, they're the only ones. They don't get a seat at the table. They don't get a plate at the table. They get nothing. And maybe a dollar every now and then will fall off into the hands of the crooked politicians. But you know who it won't hands it won't fall into? Yours. So, so let me... 
put this in perspective here. The United States is giving billions of dollars to the Ukrainian government in the guise of we're buying weapons to fight the Ruskies, right? And and uh, 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 Zelensky, whoever, comes over here and says, we've got to have more money. We've got to protect our people. It's democracy. Oh, the Russians are going to get us. More money, suckers. More money. And then Biden and his crooked, shysty team says, hey, guys, uh, we got to fight the stand for democracy. We may not have it here, but we need it other places. So this money's going to Ukraine. And... The Ukrainians are using it for investment scams? Hey, there's a war going. What are you going to do? Well, I'm thinking, you know, long term, we probably should buy some crypto. Does that make sense to you? Well, maybe this will make sense. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried funneled max donation to Nancy Pelosi's successor. Bankman-Fried, this is the guy who just got arrested for running FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried, he just got locked up because he's a scamming criminal, right? Bankman-Fried delivered a maximum donation to Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York. The money leaves your pocket, goes to the government, goes to Ukraine. They buy crypto or something with it, and it goes right back into the pockets of these crips, these crooks. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you, Garlin Nixon. And next up on Arts Express. Well, me and my mother had just got in from Jamaica at Fort Lauderdale Airport in Florida. And um, immigration pulled me aside and asked me three questions. They asked me, what was my name? And of course, I answered Muhammad Ibn Ali. And they asked me about where did I get my name from? Who gave me my name? And I said, obvious, my mother, my father named me. And so there's another question they asked, and I was kind of skeptical about answering. I said, why would they ask me that question? But they asked me, they asked me, um, what was your religion? And I was like, I'm Muslim. But obviously, I don't think they believed me, so I told them that I was Muhammad Ali's son. And they still, I think they still didn't believe me. So they took me into a room and asked me the questions again. And I answered them just like I did before. So I'm sitting there waiting for about an hour and 45 minutes. And then then they tell me, okay, you're free to go. And I was like, okay, so why was I detained? I said, oh, we were just doing our job. Okay, your job is to detain people and ask them about their religion? Is my papers in order? Uh, my papers and I didn't answer. And they said, well, um, where's your religion? I said, are you kidding me? What's my religion? I don't, I'm not going to even tell you who I voted for, but why you want to know uh, what's my religion? I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to be, you know, honorary or nothing. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm not going to say Christian just to get out of here, but I'm a Muslim, okay? Is that okay with you? I'm just happy to be here, and I just would love to join the fight to end this racial profiling act. And that was Muhammad Ali Jr., the only biological son of Muhammad Ali and his mother, protesting before Congress about their racial profiling and his detention at a Miami airport. But since then, as depicted in a documentary about Muhammad Jr.'s life just out, my father Muhammad Ali There's quite a difference in his ideological view of the world around him, embracing instead the concept of a post-racial America, a change in perspective or a search for father figures to fill the emptiness in his life with the lack of much attention from his own world-famous father, including the strange paternal bonding with retired New York City white cop Richard Blum, proclaimed as Mohammed Jr.'s, quote, advisor, and seems to show up everywhere in this documentary and directing all aspects of his life, including hovering over him and dispensing advice during radio broadcast interviews. Blum also turned up unexpectedly on the phone to participate as well for this conversation, which I adamantly declined. 
and now some scenes from my father Muhammad Ali, then a conversation with Muhammad Jr., and with some commentary by the filmmaker Tom Danucci. I wouldn't want to be the son of Muhammad Ali. No, I wouldn't take it. The last few years have been really hard on me, Dad. Thinking of you gives me strength to survive. That's why I'm still here. Do you think he liked the fact that everybody thought he was so great? Oh, yeah, because he used to say it all the time. So I'm the greatest. But what about being the greatest father? Muhammad Ali. I was the only one that had the name. Daddy was just daddy to me. I look at him as being a hero. I look at him as being an icon. I look at him as being nothing but daddy. Muhammad Ali Jr. was just not that important to his father. Great chicken, no bones about it. Now, he didn't raise his children. His grandma raised them. And that was the only thing I regretted in my life, because I think I would have been better off if I had my children with me all the time. It tore me up inside. I taught my father to really care for me. But later on, I found out that it wasn't him. My dad, he has two other daughters. I've never met them. I don't know them like that. What's the first thing you're going to say to your daughters when you see them? I love them. I miss them. I haven't seen them since they was like, small. I'm very excited. This is the first time I've seen them in four years. I think Muhammad Ali Jr. is probably driven to want to do something that helps him feel like he is using the legacy of his father the way that he's experienced some of his siblings is doing. There's a guy walking around with a name like Muhammad Ali Jr. and you never hear nothing. Like I'm talking to his father. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Sounds just like him, oh my God. I think the fact that Muhammad Ali was his father, whether or not he was docile or could fight back, of course is gonna make you susceptible to bullying. He cares and he wants to keep the legacy of his father alive. We're gonna build gyms for kids that are being bullied where they can go and train and learn discipline. We're gonna get them back into the gyms, teach them how to defend themselves so they can become the greatest that they can be. The greatest. My father told me one time, he said, I don't want you to be like me, I want you to be better than me. I can't be better than the greatest of all time. That's kind of big shoes to fill. I am your only son, Dad. Only I can carry on your legacy and your family name. I want you to be proud of me. Hello, Muhammad Jr. and Tom, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much for having us today. Could each of you say a little about why you wanted to make this movie? And would you say your reason is the same or different in any way? Oh, okay. Well, the reason I wanted to make this uh, documentary was for the simple fact that there's a lot of hearsay about the Ali family, me. It's a lot of people that don't know me, don't know that I exist. Uh, and I am probably the reason for that because I never like to be in the limelight in the camera's eye. So... That's part of the reason why a lot of people don't know who I am. And the other reason is to bring light of a lot of things that have been said about me that is not true. And just to get out there and let people know that I am the one that's going to continue the Muhammad Ali legacy. Okay. And Tom? Yeah, for me it was, you know, I've always been a big fan, of course, of the legendary Muhammad Ali, and I feel like He's this larger-than-life figure that there's been so many countless books and movies and television shows and documentaries about Muhammad Ali, the fighter, and Muhammad Ali, the activist. But there's not a whole lot of information out there about Muhammad Ali, the family man. Um, so I felt as though this was a unique chance to tell a very, very unknown story about such a well-known figure. And Ali... We hear a lot from you about school bullying and how you're opposing it, but we don't hear from you about how racism factors in, and you seem to have attended all-white schools. Please talk about that and why it wasn't included in this film. Well, a lot of people, they take racism as a bad, it's bad, it's really bad, actually, because I uh, don't understand why people are racist. There's only one race, the human race. So to be racist, to be not human. This anti-bullying, the reason why I cut into the anti-bullying, 
my school wasn't an all-white school. It had 10% black at the time when I started. Mm. Now it's like almost like 99, 100% black. Mm. But uh, a lot of people, you know, the only reason why I started this anti-bullying, number one, my father said it was going to be important later on in life. Mm. Number two, I was bullied as a child. And we became friends. Nowadays, that's not the case. They don't do that anymore. They do worse things. So that's the reason why, because I want to stop the violence in the school. When we were going to schools, our teachers had paddles. You know, we were disciplined by our mother and father. Nowadays, that's not happening. I mean, the, the respect of mother and father is gone. In, in the family uh, structure. And we see in one scene your father's funeral and where you talk about being denied to participate as a pallbearer. But Mike Tyson and Will Smith doing so, why were you denied that right? Oh, well, actually someone, my, actually my father's wife decided that I wouldn't be able to be a pallbearer without even asking me. That's why that happened. Yeah. Oh, good. There was no respect for my feelings at that point. Yeah. And what are your thoughts about your father's political activism, which you don't talk about in the film, dropping his name Cassius Clay as a slave name, his stand against the Vietnam War, which ignited that protest movement across the country, and for which he paid a price with a conviction and barred from boxing? Well, I'm going to be totally honest with you. At that point in my life, and actually right today, I looked at my father as being daddy. Mm. I didn't look at him as being an activist. I didn't look at him as being a great humanitarian. I didn't look at him as being the world champion boxer. I looked at my father as being daddy. Yeah. And in that regard, what were your aspirations? Like, did you want to follow in your father's footsteps in any way? And what did you want to be in your youth when you grew up? Actually, my, me and my father had that um, conversation about what I would do when I was th at that age. And I said, Daddy, you're going to be knocking out the teeth. I'm going to become a dentist and put the teeth back in their mouth. <laughs> and your father's unique and inventive rhyming is said to have influenced the birth of rap. What are your thoughts about that? I believe that, but he also invented something else. He also epitomized black beauty. Because he said, I'm pretty. I don't have a mark on my face. I must be the great. So, you know, he, he actually symbolized black beauty too. And how did that influence you, the notion of black pride? Well, I'm going to put it like this because I'm grounded in my way of life. And I believe that all life is near and dear to God, just like my father said. God created us all equal in all humans. And I can't see past that. And do you have any message, as we see in the film, for the people who have hurt you in your life? I love you. You are God's creation. And I forgive each and every one of you. And you talk about the neglect you experienced by both parents. What are your thoughts about this as we live in a society where there are no safety nets for families, and in particular, especially women, and like your mother, who left you with your grandmother to work, try to pursue both roles as a parent and also achieving a goal in their own lives besides parenting? Well, I looked at, I said, I let, I also say I was grounded on my faith, and I was taught to honor the mother and father no matter what. So that's what I do. I honor that mother and father no matter what. I don't care what they did in their life, or how they led their life, or what happened. I love them equally, and that will never change. And since this film was made, was there any follow-up to this story of your life and your relationship with different people? Yes. My, I got actually a message for uh, actually the world. 
and it is find the greatness that God made you for and live for that purpose. Only then will you become free within your body, mind, and spirit. And if your father Muhammad Ali were still alive, do you have any message for him? Number one, I love him. Number two, he gave me great advice on family, as far as family is concerned. I love my children. I care so much about them. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help them. And they're, they're the biggest part of my life. And for each of you, what do you hope this film conveys to audiences? about you, Mohammed Jr., and on the other hand, about your father? Well, I wanted to convey that me and my father love the heaven, the earth, and everything in between. And we want to see the world become great like it used to be. I want people to be happy, loving each other, coming to united with each other, not hating each other anymore, living in a world of love and peace. And Tom? Well, I think that, you know, again, to speak to uh, Muhammad Ali and, and just the amount of fandom that he has and, and you know, the legacy of, of that, you know, the great legendary Muhammad Ali, I feel like people love in this day and age to do a deep dive on, on people that they love and admire. And I think that this is just providing fans of Muhammad Ali with more information on a character that they really care about, you know, an inside look at, at, a, at a person that, you know, is, is such a, a legend. Um, and I think that from a family standpoint, I'd like to think that maybe people could learn something from this, that, you know, um, it's important to not let the passage of time be your enemy and reach out and you know a lot of people are in similar situations to, that Muhammad Jr. have been in where you know trying to reconcile with children and family members and, and I think the, the important message here is it's not always going to be perfect it's not always going to be roses but if you try and you make an attempt to reconcile with, with a family member or a friend or whoever it was from your past you know, love can overpower and positive things can come from it. So I think that this movie can maybe help people who are in a similar situation or have shared some similar situations that Muhammad Jr. has to say, you know what, let me reach out. Let me contact that person. Uh, let me get in touch with them and, and let me try and make this right because life is short. And I think that's, that's one of the kind of undertones of this film. You know, Muhammad Ali was this great legendary figure, but, you know, still just a man, and we only have so much time on this earth to make things right. And what about clearing up any misconceptions about either of them? I think a lot of that's going to be uh, up for the audience to kind of decide after they watch the film. You know, I I can't, Muhammad can't, nobody can kind of uh, put a feeling in someone's mind. It's just our job as the filmmakers to provide all the information we have to let the audience come to their own conclusions. Okay, thank you both of you for joining us on the show. Thank you, Prairie. And Mohammed? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, if I could change one person, that would make me happy. Okay, bye. 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 And my father, Muhammad Ali, is out now in release. And now on Arts Express. He just another comment sitting on the hill You see him at the bullfight closest to the kill Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Last week I took a look at the theatrics of a classic con game, Three Card Monty. Now this week I'd like to take a look at some of the most interesting films that have been made about con artists and there are a lot of them. I managed to con myself into watching or re-watching hours of such movies this week. And if I don't mention one of your favorites, rest assured this is not a definitive list by any means, just the ones I caught. I'll rate them from one to five stars just for fun. Let's start with one of the most popular con artist films of all time, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. 
set in the Depression era 1930s, The Sting is the story of two professional con men who are running what's called a long con. Now, a short con is when the sucker is cleaned out of his pocket money in a relatively short amount of time, such as three-card Monty or a phony auction. But a long con is a carefully constructed trap that can play out over weeks or even months to swindle someone out of their life savings. We're talking tens or even hundreds of thousands of bucks here. What the sting has going for it is historical accuracy, the real flavor of 1930s Chicago, and the con itself, a classic of the time called The Wire, which was a swindle where the sucker thought he was getting inside info on horse races. But unfortunately for the mark, when the time comes to put up his savings for the big kill, he loses it all. $500,000 to win. Lucky Dan, third race at Riverside. The flag is up, and uh, they're off and running. Dr. Twink is going to the front, followed by Lucky Dan, I'm a Dreamer, Orkin, Josie G, Chi Chi, and Little Star. Into the back stretch, it's Lucky Dan a link. Dr. Twink a half, Orkin ahead, I'm a Dreamer by one, followed by Sorry, Josie G. Sorry, they couldn't G, wait. G, Chi, Everything going all right? Nothing to worry about. I put it all on Lucky Dan. Half a million dollars to win. To win. Said please. Please, and I'm lucky. That horse is gonna run second. I'm a dreamer a half. Doctor Twink a half and Orkin by two. Followed by Little Star and Josie G. And it's a driving finish. Just been a mistake. Give me my money back. No, I'm sorry. I tell you, there's been a mistake. Give me. That particular con was written about in a book called The Big Con by a journalist named David Maurer. And the movie was actually based on that book. Though the film was a huge hit when it was made in 1972, for me today, it's as slow and plodding as the ubiquitous Scott Joplin score. And it takes forever for the scheme to unfold, regardless of the undeniable star power of Redford and Newman. So I'm going to give this one mm, two and a half out of five stars. For a much more acidic and probably more realistic point of view, we have two films made 10 years apart from writer-director David Mamet, House of Games, 1987, and The Spanish Prisoner, 1997. And both of them, interestingly, feature the sleight-of-hand expert Ricky Jay in supporting roles. And Jay was most likely the consultant for the scams included in these films. House of Games has no sentimental delusions about con artists. They are out-and-out out criminals and do not hesitate to abuse their victims. Do you know what a tell is? A tell? Look back over my shoulder. Guy in a beard and a cowboy shirt. You see him? Yes. He's from Las Vegas. He's been beating me all night. He's got to tell, okay? When he's bluffing, okay, he plays with his little gold ring. And I caught him doing it. And he knows I did, so he stopped. He's conscious of himself. I want you to do me this favor. What's that? I want you to be my girlfriend for a while. Come in the game. You stand behind me. Watch me play. We get in a big hand. I, I go to go pee. You watch this guy and tell me. Does he play with his gold ring? Then I know he's bluffing, I win the big hand, and I forget the 800 your friend owes. If you're such a good gambler, how'd you fall into this bind? Who told you I'm a good gambler? I'm not a gambler. You're not a gambler? No. Well, what are you then? Look, I made you a deal. Now, because House of Games, unlike The Sting, is largely told from the point of view of the victim, a psychiatrist, who is played by Dave DeMammett's first wife, Lindsay Krauss, the audience empathizes with the excitement and then exploitation that her character goes through. But Mamet's misogynistic ending is a sour milk, curdled view of human nature and of women in particular. And also, the movie feels like it was done with a budget of about $10, and the camera work is really flat and crude. However, there's no denying it's a compelling, realistic, though ugly story. I'll give that one three and a half out of five stars with half a star deducted for its lousy ending. The Spanish Prisoner, 
also by Mamet, is again told from the point of view of the mark, this time a young inventor who has created a valuable mathematical formula for the financial industry, which everyone is out to steal from him. He's put through a very long con with lots of twists and turns, and the mark in this case has to decide among many colorful characters whom to trust and whom not to trust, and not until the last minute do things get sorted out. Something big, huh? That's what they all think back home, something big. Could be something big. What is it? Sworn to secrecy, without the formula. The Japanese, or anyone else for that matter, would have nothing. You're asking us to consider making a vast investment. I want to know, what do we own? Obviously, we don't want to get too specific for security reasons. Mr. Ross, take a picture, sir? Sure. I'll give you $1,000 for that camera. The fella said we must never forget that we are human. And as humans, we must dream. And when we dream, we dream of money. Everybody on vacation's got a story. What do you do? I'm with the FBI. Mamet's filmmaking craft in The Spanish Prisoner has grown since House of Games. Mamet's second wife, Rebecca Pigeon, is featured, and she's outstanding. A good con artist movie should be a battle of wits, and this is. We in the audience, along with the young protagonists, enjoy the intellectual challenge of sorting out reality from deception. As opposed to his previous House of Games, for the ending of The Spanish Prisoner, Mamet goes easier on us and leaves us with a righteous conclusion. Four out of five stars. And next up, Six Degrees of Separation from 1993, starring Will Smith and Stocker Channing in a faithful rendition of the stage play with some attempt to open it up a bit. John Guare wrote it based on what actually happened to one of his married friends who had been conned by a young man who claimed to be the son of Sidney Poitier. <laughs> the imposter worms his way into the rich Upper East Side life of the New York City social set, but curiously never steals that much of value. Stockard Channing plays the wife of a rich art dealer who gets taken in by the imposter, but she also has a soft maternal spot in her heart for him. I read somewhere that everybody on this planet is separated by only six other people. How everyone is a new door opening into other worlds. I, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I've been hurt and I've lost everything. Hello. Oh, this is a Kandinsky, a double, one painted on either side. One wild and vivid. The other somber and geometric. Chaos control, <laughs> chaos control. Unlike the other movies, the film is not so much about the con artist, or even the con, but more about the very insulated world of the film's upscale social milieu, where art dealers are clearly hustlers and pimps on a larger scale than that young imposter could ever dream to be. The film is somewhat slow and talky, and it really doesn't successfully make the transition from stage to film. Frankly, it's still a play. But I'll bump it up from two and a half to three stars for its capturing of a great performance by Stockard Channing, especially in the last scene where she gets to the heart of and feels the phoniness of her life. She gains a new understanding that life has many sides to it, and that one can learn lessons in the most unlikely of circumstances. The Talented Mr. Ripley from 1999 is a film I had never seen before, and I have to say, while I always liked Matt Damon as an actor, I thought he was limited in his range. Oh man, was I wrong. This movie really made me respect him. The film is from a Patricia Highsmith novel, and it's dark, dark, dark. Matt Damon plays Tom Ripley, a working-class piano tuner who happens to latch on to a rich playboy living in Italy, played by Jude Law. Their relationship, though not overtly sexual, becomes more and more intimate to the point that Tom starts taking on the playboy's clothing and mannerisms. He starts making people believe he is the rich playboy. And the deceit snowballs into murder and mayhem. Dickie Greenlee? 
It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together. Did we know each other? Sorry, what is it? Ripley. How do you do? We'll just be for a little while. No, I like him. Marge, you like everybody. Marge, you like everybody. You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes, and his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. What? The talent in Mr. Ripley is an unrelentingly negative psychological portrait of a man destroyed by envy, and it's excellently directed and adapted by Anthony Minghella, and also with beautiful cinematography. How can you go wrong with on-location settings of Rome and Venice? It's totally gripping, but don't come out of it expecting to be humming the tunes. I'll give this one four and a half out of five stars. Finally, two movies that lean more to the comic side. The first one is Matchstick Men from 2003 with Nicolas Cage and Sam Rockwell as a team of short con artists who pitch worthless products over the phone to unsuspecting suckers. When Rockwell gets his OCD partner Cage to participate in a long con involving a phony foreign money exchange scam netting tens of thousands of dollars, everything goes wrong, including the participation of Cage's 14-year-old daughter, who he's meeting for the first time after a marriage gone wrong. You're a con man? A con artist. Wow. Flim flam man, mashtick man, take your pick. And that guy Frank? He's my partner. Teach me something. Rule number one, never work near where you live. Don't. Rule number two, yeah. don't write anything down. <laughs> you regret it, exposing her to that? Well, uh, you know, it was a little, it made me feel a little, uh, you know, I was a little, I really liked it. How much do you think we can take that guy for? 500,000? A million? Come on, I'm 21! This 14-year-old girl working these people with me. I'm not very good at being a dad. I barely get by being me. You think crime isn't paid? No, it does. It does, just not very well. I have to say that this movie, Matchstick Men, was one of my favorite movies of the lot, even though it's not the best. <laughs> now, what I mean by that is that it is often formulaic and sentimental, but it is a movie that's stuck in my mind days after viewing it. And the more I think about it, the more I like the unconventional ending, as sappy as some might view it. Without giving it away, I'll just say that it shows that even in the worst of circumstances, a person can change and grow. Let's give this one four and a half out of five stars. And finally, what I think is the best of the movies I saw this past week, a perfect comedy. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from 1988, starring Michael Caine, Steve Martin, and Glenn Headley. Michael Caine is a suave con man who works for the French Riviera scamming rich old ladies, and Steve Martin plays his cruder American sidekick who's eager to learn Caine's techniques of ripping off the wealthy. Excuse me, may I sit here, please? If you like. Thank you. Good evening, sir. Would you like to see the menu? Oh, yes. Starving. <laughs> really starving. Racist. <laughs> I think I'll just have some water. Water? Only water? But you seem so hungry. I'm saving my money for something special. My mother. Your mother? Well, she's not really my mother, actually. She's my grandmother, but she raised me. My real parents didn't want me. Oh, I'm sorry. But my grandmother is a wonderful woman. She has a laugh that can make the birds sing. But she's been quite ill lately, and the hospital bills have been adding up. I just want to do my share. It's kind of tough for me because I was never very good with money. I just seem to take whatever the Red Cross pays me, and I just give it right back to them. The whole movie is a series of back-and-forth competitions between Kane and Martin as they try to outdo each other in fleecing the marks in each other, and they are both hilarious. There are some terrific comedic set pieces, and 
I have to put this on my list of all-time favorite film comedies. Five stars out of five for this one. So there you have it. My top picks for the lighter side, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Matchstick Men. For the darker side, The Talented Mr. Ripley, House of Games, and The Spanish Prisoner. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller saying, Hey, watch where you're going. Wait a second. My wallet. Where's my wallet? My, just my wallet. Call, hey. Call, hey. Just another call, call, man. Just another call, call, man. Just another call, call, man. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Dispatches the first episode in a new Buzzsprout series presented by Arts Express Paris correspondent, journalist, and novelist, Professor Dennis Bro. Welcome to I Fought the Law, the law being corporate media and its shilling for global arms dealers and fossil fuel companies as it cheers on global war and planetary destruction. I'm your host, Dennis Bro. I'm a journalist, novelist, and educator. Our first segment is called Dispatches, and today's dispatch is socialism or couture. The great German radical Rosa Luxemburg put in prison and then put to death for her opposition to war and her promotion of the people's cause famously said, predicting the Nazi onslaught to come, that the choices come down to socialism or barbarism, that there's no alternative. But maybe there is a preliminary stage, or maybe it's the same stage, where the choice is socialism or couture. Couture can be high-end or low-end, as we saw recently, when the flying Zelenskys were in Paris and Washington. The former actor Vladimir appeared before the Congress in what looked like battle fatigues, green long-sleeved sweatshirt and dark corduroy pants, giving the impression that he had just come off the battlefield himself. His ask was simple. He merely wanted $50 billion and more advanced weapons to escalate the war in Ukraine, all of which he said was not charity, but an investment in democracy. The week before, Vladimir's wife, the former screenwriter and TV producer Olena Zelenska, appeared on a whirlwind tour of Paris in an elegant navy blue two-piece suit, where she met with French President Macron's wife, Bridget, amid unconfirmed reports that she had gone on a $40,000 shopping spree on the city's elegant Avenue Montaigne. One could say that both simply dressed for the occasion that the American press seemed to be confused about the actor Zelensky playing the part of battle-hardened commander and began comparing him to World War II heroes under fire, such as Winston Churchill. As both the Russian and Ukrainian sides were bogged down in the war, the American media then took to comparing the moment to the Americans briefly stuck in the muck in the 1944 Battle of the Bulge before prevailing and marching on to victory in Berlin. But given the actual state of the war, where just prior to coming to the U.S., Zelensky had ordered 60-year-old men to be drafted, along with the previous order sending largely untrained 18-year-olds into battle, both to be quickly mowed down by, on the other side, a well-trained force as the 300,000 men that Putin called up endured three months of rigorous training before being sent into battle. And since there are now multiple reports of Ukrainian infantry faced with this slaughter refusing to fight, akin to the refusal of the suicide trench warfare in World War I, depicted so poignantly in Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, and then being shot by Ukrainian nationalists with the fascists embedded with them. The more appropriate World War II analogy might be not to 1944, but to 1945, as Zelensky lives his last days in his virtual bunker. Zelensky was guaranteed close to what he wanted, $44 billion from Joe Biden, as American workers at home are in the middle of a housing crisis, as nurses are so badly understaffed in the health care system they need to go on strike for a decent workplace, and as inflation is still rampant, increasing the cost of heating and food. Of course, much of that money will simply be dumped in the laps of the American arms and weapons manufacturers, who benefited greatly from the Ukrainian money pit as a way of increasing corporate welfare spending and reapportioning funds upward to an already wealthy class feasting on this carnage. Prior to his meeting with Biden, Zelensky met with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink nominally to plan the rebuilding of Ukraine, but also to surrender the country to foreign capital, much like the attempted makeover in Iraq, which will result in his own workers living under an ever more strident regime with hours and pay dictated 
by an investor's bonanza of low-waged exploitation of the country. Zelensky's semi-army fatigues were applauded, whereas just prior, when FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, who had built his investors for billions, appeared in the media with disheveled hair and gray t-shirt, his dress was lampooned as a Silicon Valley concealing of wealth, in this case his Bahamas penthouse, on a 600-acre property with golf course, yacht marina, and private restaurants. The tycoon quickly changed gears and now appears in full appropriate arraignment gear of blue suit with matching blue and pink tie. Bankman-Fried is being lambasted as a crypto Bernie Madoff, posing as an everyday geek, but in a sense, isn't Zelensky simply picking the pockets of the American working class in his pose as wartime battle-hardened commander? Both are scam artists, beguiling a public only too willing to accept that Zelensky, who has suppressed opposition parties and media outlets and whose country if it were to apply at this moment to get into the EU, probably couldn't meet that body's standards, is a defender of democracy, and that prior to tanking, Bankman-Fried was a successful entrepreneur rather than the builder of a gigantic Ponzi scheme. Instead of Churchill, the more apt comparison of a president and a fashion plate wife might be Vietnam's DM and his de facto first lady, Madame Nu. His photogenic paramour, whose chic, elegant, ankle-length dresses, a combination of East and West, got her on the front cover of Time magazine in that war in the early 60s. This was before the U.S. and the CIA pulled the plug on the couple, whose outright corruption and bilking of the country's wealth was making them a liability. With her partner assassinated in a U.S. intelligence-sanctioned coup, she fled to Paris. If this war turns, it's possible that the flying Zelenskys could go the way of the damned-to-hell DM. I'm your host, Dennis Bro. Breaking glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.